little bit of that chill in my cup. My cup. Hey, my cup. what's up? What's good? Unless you take the money, what's you good? won't get a listen from me. I don't hear you know. I don't hear you motherfuckers. I don't hear you know. I don't hear you motherfuckers. No, it's not. My cup. My cup. My cup. Hey, what's up? Unless you take the money, you won't get a listen from me. I don't hear you know. Success is what you make and not what they tell you, I promise. Landed here with baby boy, my mother had no dollars. I came up like clockwork, my boy's in it for the commas. Commit crimes and they sleep, it's funny how shit happens. Had a brother I never knew, met him once, he talked to me. Same blood in my arteries, now the man don't talk to me. At least I don't restart, my father would have been proud of me. I'ma count from one to ten, I ain't never had one friend. Two things I never do is front shit, no pretend. Three days in my kicks, I know that you would repent. Four licks in five days, my boys tell me that crime pays. Six blunts and seven bottles, got them leaning up sideways. Kill a track with eight balls, they going blind like Ray Charles. My cuzzo, keeping on my murky ass over $10. Try to pin that murder on him, beat that shit in self-defense. Give a fuck about nobody, flashback when I hop the fence. We drank it, drank it. What's good? What's good? Grinding for this paper, ho. My fucking word, they don't deserve it, bro. Brick walls can't stop the boy. Your main bitch, she on the boy. Boys in blue wanna like my boy. Wanna y'all don't mock the boy. It's all fun, it's all gang. So they pulling up and they pop your boy. Cops yelling out, don't run. Robin Shitter was all fun. Disappear like cool Danny, no loose ends. Get a job done. Lights a bitch, but I'm fucking. I'm murder pussy, I'm a real one. Provide for my fam. Something I must do with that means you gotta die. It ain't shit to dust you. Y'all talk way too much. That's why I'm never gonna trust you Said that you gotta die for anybody to love you Bitch, I got that etiquette, man Y'all dudes ain't righteous I'm young, but I'm making a million The word tonight, shit We drank it, what's up? What's good? Unless you talk money, you won't get a listen from me I don't hear you know I really can't hear you Episode of hip hop for the culture. I am your host Remy. That song that you actually just heard is called "I Don't Hear You" by Alexandros V, aka AC. You know, one of my favorite artists right now in Calgary. But we have a lot to talk about that has gone on. Uh, we'll start with the whole Allen Iverson thing. Shout out to Allen Iverson. He actually just was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. 
one of the greatest icons in the hip-hop culture point blank period and we're gonna get right into this whole meek and game beef which is utterly ridiculous it's two grown men fighting over accusations that haven't been proven yet game is a bit corny for this matter of fact i have a clip here from my uh, co-host who could not be here with me today chris where he it kind of explains how i myself feel about this whole situation here take a listen I understand, like, yo, remember that day when Tory Lane said it, said it on the stage, yeah. and before he fell off, yeah, it's all calculated. Don't let nothing slip by you, my nigga. This is a game. Every move, every chess piece you see, we're the pawns. The fans are the pawns mm. because we eat this shit up. We we're forced to pick a side, you know. Yeah, it's all calculated. At the end of the day, bro, I'm not saying from a standpoint of a fan. I side with Meek because I've been a Meek fan, I've been a the game fan, but this is not right. If somebody ends up, if this is actually a real thing and it's not a fake thing like I, I think it is, and somebody ends up dead, it's gonna be the game's fault. The game is a motherfucking bitch. No nigga should ever listen to his music. No man should ever fuck with him. Like no man, sh nobody should even be around this kind of type of nigga because that's that's a toxin, that's a cancer. That was a basic breakdown of how me and Chris feel about this whole game and Meek Mill beef. It's a bit ridiculous. Both of these guys are superstars right now. Both of these guys have young black men that they employ. Both of these guys have families and children that look up to them. So for them to get on this corny shit and be threatening each other, threatening to shoot one another or wanting to fight one another instead of coming together as powerful black men leading the black community, that shit is a bit corny to both of you. Both of you guys do deserve what Charlemagne calls donkey of the day or for the year game. You were just talking about how you wanted to be to bring peace into the black community and to be a positive role model for your children. So I don't get how you can be a positive role model when you're going and threatening another black man with your gang ties and whatnot. Meek, I'd have thought that you were smarter than that than to take bait from a rapper that is obviously trying to use you in order to promo his album that is going to be released in about a week or two. You know what I mean? But anyways, we're going to switch gears into something that's more important. We're going to have to talk about this Terrence Crutcher situation. Rest in peace to that man. On his way home, his car broke down and in and he called for help and instead of the police coming and offering some type of assistance he ends up getting shot down in the middle of the road in cold blood and dies before he reaches the hospital that is a type of shit that hurts my heart so to anybody that tells me that there is no more racism because we're in 2016 i'm gonna need you guys to shut the fuck up and sit down somewhere okay like this this has been going on too long at what point do like, do we come together as a society and realize that this cannot go on? Humans do not deserve to be shot down in cold blood for absolutely no reason whatsoever. I don't give a damn who it is, gang members, black on black crime, white on black crime, white on white crime, police on anybody crime. Nobody deserves to die the way that he did. No, but if you don't, if you don't believe me and how I feel. I have a clip here from, from a black leader, a strong black leader in the community that basically explains the anger that I have right now, the anger and the frustration that I have every time I watch the news and see something like this happen. Take a listen, please. But someone could go to Iraq 
and come back with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? right? From seeing this man get killed. But we can suffer from police brutality, but no one think black people fucking sick. From seeing their own brother being murdered in front of his wife-to-be. You don't think that that traumatized a bunch of us black men in America and traumatized a bunch of black women in America and seeing it over and over play out with no edits? But if I say something against homosexuals, my post may be blocked. But if I show you a black man being murdered live and direct with the blood and we watch his last breath, they don't block the fucking Instagram post. They don't block the Facebook post. We can see one of our own get murdered in cold blood from the very beginning to the end. We can see it in cold blood. No edit. That was a basic breakdown of how I feel every time I watch the news and see another black man, another innocent black man for that matter, being shot down by the police for absolutely no reason. It shouldn't happen. We're in 2016, man. Like, this is 2016. I don't understand why we're still even having to talk about these type of issues or having to see these type of issues play out in the news. Like, it, this is getting old. Matter of fact, take a listen to a, a clip I pulled off of the Young Turks YouTube channel. It's one of my favorite things to watch, but take a listen. The Guardian's reporting showed that about one-third of black suspects killed were unarmed. That is such an enormously high number. Compared with one-fourth of Hispanic suspects and about one-sixth of white suspects. Does it happen to African-Americans more? Yes. Does it happen to Latinos more? Yes. Okay. And like one-third of the time that a black person gets shot by the cops, he has no weapons. While the majority of suspects in the case is, uh, the Post looked at were white, blacks and Hispanics made up two-thirds of those who were unarmed. So the people who they shot who were unarmed, two-thirds were minorities. Wild coincidence, I'm sure. Of, uh, wild. Uh, uh, so many coincidences. They just keep piling up. Now, let's see if that is disproportionate. Based on the census numbers for the areas where the killings took place, according to Reuters, blacks were killed at three times the rate of whites or other minorities. They killed at three times the rate. And you, the right-wing idiots will say, no, 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 no. It's because blacks are more violent. They're more likely to do uh, criminal acts. That's why they had to be killed. But wait a minute. I just told you that they were killed more often when they were unarmed. They're killed more often than whites are when they're unarmed. See, it's not that they're doing something worse. It's not that they have worse weapons. They were more of a danger to the cops. It is the assumption of the cops. Oh, I see a black man. He's unarmed. I don't know. He's black. He's dangerous. Boom. Don't ask questions. Shoot him down. Mow him down. Kill him. And then we'll ask questions later. Okay? I'm not saying it. The numbers are saying it. I didn't do it. They did it. I, like, it's comical to say it's race baiting. I'm showing you the numbers. If you don't believe the numbers, there's something wrong with you. You're being purposely ignorant and blind. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. All these black people getting shot, they're not even armed. I don't care. They're dangerous anyway. They're dangerous anyway. You know how they are. Oh, I see. And by the way, I sometimes I'll get in debates online, and it almost always winds up that way. You know how they are. Yeah, I know. I know how you are. Switching gears here a little bit, we're going to actually get into the presidential debate from last night. The fact that Donald Trump actually thinks that he has a good relationship with the black community is absolutely hilarious to me. The fact that he said that on national television is absolutely... As a matter of fact, take a listen to what he said. Take a listen to this and tell me what you think. 
I think that I've developed very, very good relationships over the last little while with the African-American community. I think you can see that. Please somebody tell Donald Trump to go sit down somewhere talking about having a great relationship with the black community. It's like, bitch, where? When did this happen? Did I miss something? You know, I love Hillary Clinton for hitting him with facts about her traveling to different countries and being able to use diplomacy to settle certain situations that could turn out hostile. Take a listen to what she said, because apparently she doesn't have the quote unquote stamina. Take a listen. This year, Secretary Clinton became the first woman nominated for president by a major party. Earlier this month, you said she doesn't have, quote, a presidential look. She's standing here right now. What did you mean by that? Uh, she doesn't have the look. She doesn't have the stamina. I said she doesn't have the stamina. And I don't believe she does have the stamina. To be president of this country, you need tremendous stamina. The quote was, you I have, just don't think wait, she has a presidential look. Wait a minute, unless you ask me a question. Did you ask me a question? You have to be able to negotiate our trade deals. You have to be able to negotiate, that's right, with Japan, with Saudi Arabia. I mean, can you imagine we're defending Saudi Arabia and with all of the money they have, we're defending them and they're not paying? All you have to do is speak to them. Wait, you have so many different things you have to be able to do, and I don't believe that Hillary has the stamina. Let's let her respond. Well... As soon as he travels to 112 countries and negotiates a peace deal, a ceasefire, a release of dissidents, an opening of new uh, opportunities in nations around the world, or even spends 11 hours testifying in front of uh, a congressional committee, he can talk to me about stamina. Hillary for president, that's all I can say. Anyways, today's a very special episode. Just two weeks ago, I was able to go down to Warner Music Canada and interview Steve Kane, who is the current president of Warner Music Canada. And if you are an artist or a musician, I would highly, highly encourage you to sit down for the next hour and listen to this interview. Great, great, great information that you can use in the near future. Anyways, we're going to get right into it. We'll be back. Today I'll be interviewing Warner Music Canada President Steve Kane. His background includes being the National Marketing Manager at IRS Records, Label Manager at IRS Records, Marketing Manager at Virgin Music Canada. EMI Group, uh, Sashi EMI Group was the Director of Marketing at A&M Island Motown Records, was Senior Vice President of Polygram Music Canada, and was Senior Vice President of Universal Music Canada. So thank you for sitting down today with me. My pleasure, Ray. And you were the Senior Vice President of Warner Brothers when uh, Billy Talent was signed. I was always curious to see how that, or know how that deal kind of happened behind the scenes. Uh, it was actually, it was uh, very early in my time with, with uh, Warner Music Canada. We had an A&R person at that, uh, at that time, a, a woman named Jen Hurst, yeah. Jennifer Hurst, who had been following Billy Talent from their previous incarnation. Uh, I believe they were called, uh, sorry, they were called Pez uh, before they were called Billy Talent. And the demo tape had been floating around the office. And um, there was some initial interest but the company was do going through a bit of a transition period. So it kind of got shuffled around. And then I heard from uh, my friend Chris Taylor, who was there, uh, uh, who's an uh, entertainment lawyer, yeah. now at E1 Entertainment. 
uh, I heard from Chris that there had been a deal discussed about uh, funding some more demos, uh, and we would split the cost between Warner Music Canada and uh, EMI Music Publishing. Nice. The band were already signed to EMI Music Publishing. So there had been this loose handshake agreement to do some, some demos, but it kind of got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. So when I, and I really liked what I'd already heard. And uh, I went to see the band one time with Jen and just thought they were incredible. Okay. So I said, well, I didn't know about this hand. So yes, let's do it. So we went ahead, we did the demos, went and saw the band a couple more times. Uh, and that's really all it took. It was, you know, hearing the songs, seeing an incredible live show, and at that point they didn't have a manager, but they had um, uh, they had Chris Taylor as their lawyer. Mm -hmm. I believe Ralph James from uh, United Talent Agency was already on board, so they already had a great team around them, and they'd already been a band for close to ten years at that point, from high school on. So they maybe it was seven. Um, but you know, it all and it all showed, and it, it showed that they had reached that next level. They put out an independent record. Yeah. They had all the pieces in place. It was a pretty easy decision. Yeah, no, I, I definitely love Billy Talent. Growing up, that was actually before I got into the whole spin of hip hop thing. I was more into Green Day, Billy Talent. They were always on my radar. Um, now my next question was like, what was Warner Music like when you first got here, and how did you shake things up? Uh, Warner Music was already, you know, was a great company. Yeah. They had a long heritage of investment in Canadian talent. Uh, going back, I mean, we, the company will celebrate its 50th year in Canada next year. Yeah. So it, it was already a very well-established A&R team. If I were to say anything, it maybe had grown a little bit safe. We had a very strong presence in, in East Coast of Canada. We had a lot of um, singer-songwriter focused. Um, you know, Blue Rodeo was it wasn't is still the the, you know, the, the yeah. jewel in the crown. Yeah. Um, but I, I did feel that when I got here, we had things had started to we'd started to play things a little safe. So going out and looking to expand um, what the roster represented, which is why again Billy Talent was a very important important signing for the company. Because it uh, heralded uh, heralded a return to sort of street-focused music, um, you know, and that signing was followed very quickly by signing Buck Sixty Five, mm. who I remember when we signed Buck, the um, uh, there was a major there was a m music critic I think it was in the Globe and Mail at the time, I think it was the Globe critic yeah. who said. This makes no sense for Warner Music to sign. This is not a major label, especially Warner Music yeah. type of signing. I beg to, you know, yeah. I, I disagreed. It was, you know, it was very street. It was very interesting. You know, if you go back to when this label signed Blue Rodeo, mm. people were saying, well, what have you just signed? You know, they signed this band that's too rock for country, too country for rock. Like, this is never going to work. So we kind of, the, the, the idea was let's, um, let's shake up the perception of what kind of acts we sign. Uh, and I think those first two acts did. Makes sense. You know, as far as any major shakeup when I got here, what I discovered was 
there were a lot of talented people who might not have been given enough rope to do their job. Uh, and so rather than coming in and saying, well, we have to clean house or let's, you know, let's shake things up massively, I decided to take a, a period of time and just give people the freedom to do their job. So I spent a lot of the first little bit I was here asking people, what do you think your job is? Like, what is it you'd like to be doing right now? What is it you've been allowed to do? And what I learned, and I've seen in other places I've worked, is people want the freedom to be creative and to do their job, but they want to know that there's there's a backup support, yeah, that yeah, you've got their back. Yeah, so it was really just taking a culture that already existed and trying to amplify it. Nice. nice. Yeah, I remember Bob always told us that that Blue Rodeos is a quote-unquote baby, even till this day. So he, he really enjoys the fact that he was able to bring them over here. Um, I also I read in a newspaper from 2002 written by Larry LeBlanc where he quotes entertainment lawyer Don Burke from Castle Brock and Brockwell here in Toronto where he says Warner has definitely been out and about also said he that he felt that you were a great though that you had a great set of ears where do you think that talent or that ability to be able to hear talent came from uh i, I think if i have any talent <laughs> to do that uh, which is very nice of somebody to say uh i think where it comes from is just a life immersed in music um growing up around music uh, the, our, our, my childhood home was always full of music something I was drawn to you know, I started collecting records at a very young age and it was trying to listen to what made a performance unique what made a song unique um, having you know even from a from a, a, from a record point of view one of the things I look for is you know does this artist have a sense of self yeah does this artist uh, does this artist paint me a picture? Do I believe their character? Because mm. I think to one degree or another, and you know, maybe an artist would, would dis disagree with me, I think all artists play a character. Yeah. They, they all they invent a persona. They invent a story around them. So I think if I, whether it's at a live show or listening to a recording, if I start to buy into that character, if I start, start to buy into that story, that really makes me lean forward yeah. and, and take a listen. You know, that's on the talent side. You know, this is, again, as you know from, from being at Harris, this is the music business. Yeah, that's why I came. Yeah. So you, you, I sit back and I also look at, okay, what is their team like? What is their, what's their end goal? What, what's the infrastructure around them? Um, you know, one of, the, one of the first raps I give any new artist when we sit down to start working together is, if you think that the goal, the end goal, was to get a record deal, you got to rethink. Because today, as soon as you sign that piece of paper, you now have a job. Yeah. You now have to work. This has gone from being a dream to being a job. Yeah. And it's up to you to make it your dream job. And if you, if you work and you approach your art like a business and you've got the people surrounding you to take care of that, then you, you know, you, you've, you've uh, multiplied your, your chances of succeeding. So it's, yeah, it's, you know, I think 
at times. I've got a pretty good ear. Yeah. Um, and I think I can recognize the ability of people to work as a team and, and, and to do hard work. So that's always, that's always good. Uh, who are some of the most memorable artists you yourself have like come across over your years in the music business? Like if you were to name like two or three artists, who would you think are the most memorable that you've been able to work with? Um, oh boy, that's you know, over 30 years to think about just to think about some of the characters and to think about people who impressed me one way or the other. I mean, you know, being able to sit at separate times, um, you know, to be able to spend some time with Robert Plant mm. of, of Led Zeppelin yeah. was pretty, uh, that, that's pretty memorable stuff. Um, to be able to watch the rise of, um, of Lenny Kravitz, who again, created this amazing, well, he was this amazing persona. Yeah. He tapped into something that people really needed at that time when that first record came out. It was almost like people were afraid to be rock stars then. And Lenny Kravitz walked out, like from the minute you saw this guy, from the minute you heard him um, on the first record, and then certainly once uh, Are You Gonna Go My Way hit. Yeah. So he lived, breathed, he was a rock star. And so that was incredible to, to watch and to see the how quickly things went uh, from the release of the Are You Gonna Go My Way record to all of a sudden he's sharing stages and you know with the Rolling Stones and sharing writing rooms with you know, the best of the previous generation and they're learning from him. So watching Lenny in action was always very cool. Um, you know, we had a, I had the good fortune when I was at. Uh, at Polygram and working with a lot of Def Jam mm -hmm. stuff. Um, meeting Jay-Z early on. Yeah. Like, when he was just Jay-Z. Now, of course, he's Jay-Z. But <laughs> you could see, you know, there was a fire in his eye. There was a... Um, just ready to go and take on all competition and also, you know, talk about having your business buttoned down. Like he wanted to know, like he and Dash together, just standing off to the side, listening to those two talk to each other and plan. I mean, launching, you know, seeing how they uh, initially launched Rockefeller and to see, you know, they were always thinking a couple of steps ahead. Yeah. And just musically, it was like, wow, I mean, you know, this, this is incredible. See, now I was going to ask you a specific question, but I'm going to stick to that Damon Dash topic. Have you ever gone to see the, what the dynamic is like when he comes inside of like a boardroom? Because I've only seen videos of him when he gets super, super passionate oh. about his artist. Have you ever gone to experience that side of Damon Dash? No, not Damon. I, I, I have seen other managers who, um, who, 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 whose belief in their artist, whose, whose uh, joint vision with their artist can be so strong and so overwhelming um, and you you look and you think okay that's partly you know this has a huge amount of, uh, uh, to do with why this artist is successful um, I had the pleasure of working a number of Melissa Etheridge records her manager Bill Leopold and Melissa are to me one of the shining examples the epitome of what a team can do together when they have absolute trust and faith in each other and share a vision. And, you know, I remember, well, 
can't actually remember which Melissa record it was, but you know, I remember her manager saying, you know, for that particular year, this is the Super Bowl of records. You will get this right. You will win this way. And it was this, you know, he wasn't over pitching. He wasn't arrogant about it. It's just like, this is what we've got. You tell me now how you're going to maximize it. Um, you know, it's the probably the, the most shining example of that is Bruce Allen, you know, Canadian legend, and in, you know, one of the world's greatest managers, an international businessman like there's very few managers that can stand toe-to-toe with Bruce Allen his utter belief and commitment particularly in the early days to, to Brian Adams like fiercely protective shared you know was able to help Brian articulate what it was going to mean to be you know the biggest rock star in the world for and for a time that, that was Brian Adams to watch Brian, uh, to watch Bruce shepherd and guide the career of Michael Bublé, to turn Michael Bublé in, you know, into a brand, yeah, and to the point where people who come along now, who are maybe going into the same, you know, great American songbook, like yeah. going back to some of those standards and classics, you know, you 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 hear them say he could be the next Michael Bublé. Yeah. Or, you know, you hear a woman walk in and do all those standards. And yeah. those, you know, beautiful, again, classic American songbook songs. Well, I think she could be the female Michael Bublé. Hmm. It's just, you know, he's created this, this brand. He's created this, uh, you know, nobody is going to say at, at the beginning of Michael Bublé's career that, Here's a guy who was doing covers of songs that were associated with the Frank Sinatra and stuff in small jazz clubs. Mm-hmm. Bruce and Michael knew that they were going to do stadiums. They knew they were going to do so from rooms. just the, from the get go. They, they knew, knew it. it. That was the plan. I'm, we're going to take it from here to here. That's pretty inspiring when you get to sit in the same room and when you get to strategize with these guys and when you get to be part of that process. Keeps you on your toes. You learn something, um, and to me, that's when I think about managers and entrepreneurs that I've had the pleasure of working with. It's the ones that I learn something from, and it doesn't have to be you know a legendary dude like uh, uh, Brian, uh, uh, Bruce Allen. Yeah. You know, it can be, and of course, I've just forgotten his name, but there's this this guy who managed uh, My Chemical Romance. I yeah. remember, I love that, one of my favorites, one of my all-time favorites, I don't even, I, I don't even remember where, I, I believe I saw their one music video pop up on much music mm-hmm. earlier in the days, and that was just like a, who are these guys, type of thing, their outfits, type of sound that yeah, they the had. Yeah, the whole present, presentation. It was, it was one of those things that will grab your attention, like I wonder who these guys are, and then you go and research them, and you end up really enjoying the type of music that they but their manager was, you know, uh, a buddy of theirs and helped shepherd them through the early years and really helped them build. And I would sit with him and he was like, I don't know, 15 years younger than me, 10 years, been in the business, uh, you know, a lot shorter period than I did, or I had been. But man, did I learn stuff from him. I learned about, um, you know, presentation and thinking about your brand and 
idea of you're giving your fans a total experience. Don't just think of it as a record. Don't just think of it as a show. You know, this is how you build it into um, working within their lifestyle. And so, Brian, Brian Schechter was his name. Um, so you watch and you learn pe- from from people at all levels of the business and all elements of the business. And never walk, you know, never begin your day at work thinking, well, I already know this. Because, <laughs> you know, there's every, you know, every day is different. Uh, this is a question that I've wanted to kind of figure out from like an executive side because I've always had arguments with other um, artists, I guess, at school. When we talk about the merger between Atlantic Record and Warner Music. Mm-hmm. And we always have disagreements about when it actually happened or how it happened. Would you be able to kind of give a brief breakdown of how that whole merger happened? Because I believe that Atlant- or Atlantic Record probably plays a really big role in the urban market, at least to the best of my yeah. knowledge. Um, well, I mean, the, the history of the Warner Music Group really begins with you know, Warner Brothers Films started a label... Primarily at the beginning of uh, um, sound coming to, to movies, yeah. and they, so they owned a publishing company. They they owned a, a film company. They thought it would just be a way to exploit uh, the music they were making for their films. Yeah, they released those as records. Through many many years, um, the record company actually they were they were, they were going to fold the record company at one point. Oh wow! Warner Brothers Films was going to pull the plug on the record company. Really. Then they released an album by a comedian named Bob Newhart, who you know, is, is a wonderful, funny, funny comedian from the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, that turned it around. It was like the first, you know, first million-selling comedy record. And comedy records are pretty inexpensive. So all of a sudden, they're like, okay, maybe we won't shut this thing down. <laughs> And then they, from there, they went on to release records by the Everly Brothers that were just enormously successful. So somewhere along the line, you've got Atlantic Records, who were a pioneer um, in, in New York of signing blues, jazz, and R&B records. Like they, um, you know, they set the tone for, for R&B back in the, the, in the 40s and, and 50s and you know, into Ray Charles and you know, Barbara Lewis, Laverne Baker... And they struck a deal with uh, Stax Records down in, in Memphis, and were really the premier soul in R&B label, fiercely independent. Warner bought Atlantic, and all of a sudden now you had an East Coast and a West Coast set of labels doing fairly different things. You know, for the longest time, um, Atlantic remained in the R&B and black music business yeah. and that was their focus up until about Led Zeppelin really so early 70s late 60s early 70s Ahmet Ertegen who was the founder of Atlantic Records and still ran it under you know, for, for the Warner Music Group started to sign a couple of mostly um, UK based white rock bands okay. but all of whom had a blues and soul background. so you know Eric Clapton Led Zeppelin, finally get, you know, getting the Rolling Stones into the uh, Atlantic world via Rolling Stones record. 
you know, Amit, uh, you know, the, um, the uh, working with, uh, oh, like working with uh, like a lot of the Southern rock bands. Okay. That started to evolve and, and change Atlantic Records. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, you had um, uh, Warner Brothers, who were really specializing in that slick Southern California, um, a little bit of easy listening, but you know, you, all of a sudden they're doing records by people like Fleetwood Mac and Jackson Brown. And, uh, so that all, you know, that all came together and they started to create this, it was um, it was a major record company that that was really made up of three independent companies within the umbrella. So you had Warner Brothers, yeah. Electra, which started as a folk label out in in New York, but again sort of morphed into um, sort of a soft rock, country rock label. It was the home of the Eagles. It was the home of Jackson Brown. It was the home of Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. Then you had Atlantic Records, who had this rich R&B history, moved into rock, um, but they were all under the umbrella of Warner Communications, Warner Music, uh, and the, the fellow who, who put that together was smart enough to say, I've got three of the best executive teams in the business. Let them, let them each run their fiefdom figure out where it all comes together so that, yeah that's that's how the whole Warner group thing came together um, I think Atlantic in recent years you know, with some changes that happened right, around the time I got here so around 15 years ago really started to re-emerge as a, a strong urban label um, under the guidance of Craig Coleman Julie Greenwald, yeah. who had a long history at Def Jam, and uh, um, uh, Lior Cohen, who, was, who, who ran New Warner Music Group for a while, he, you know, they had their background in, in the Def Jam world and in, in the urban music world. So you know, that kind of started to reemerge. But I think both Warner Brothers and Atlantic, I don't think either of those labels you can pigeonhole and say, well, this is what they do, because, you know, at the same time that um, uh, Atlantic Records is, is working a Wiz Khalifa record, yeah. they've also got a monster on their hands with 21 Pilots. Yeah. You know, you've got, uh, you know, and, and, and Bruno, and then you've got, on Warner Brothers, it's the same thing. You've got, um, you know, Michael Buble and Green Day. <laughs> pretty, pretty opposite. opposite. So, yeah. and then and then somebody like comes along, uh, who's a wonderful singer. If you haven't heard her yet, is a woman named Audra Day. Oh, just just a beautiful voice and that a sort of throwback to that. You know, it's actually a throwback to a classic Atlantic sound yeah, that yeah. she's on Warner Brothers. So it's like this beautiful R and B singer. So anyway. no, I appreciate it. I appreciate Warner Brothers just because Warner Brothers has like vision. Like I believe. Or up to a year ago, where Warner Brothers gave or gave Mac Miller the green light to have or be able to start signing artists and whatnot, which I thought was amazing because even with the last uh, album Mac Miller just released, I think he has he has the ability to hear great music and be able to actually bring together great artists. Just by list, I listened last night. I was actually listening to his last album that he just released last night. The way that he's able to put 
together that album like blew me away just because if P- I don't know if other people are gonna hear it but I believe that album is taking it back to the blues and jazz because that's you could hear the samples the jazz samples at one point it, he just lets the guitarist just play for like 30 40 seconds which I was like wow and then he's able to incorporate that into his rap that he was in the, the best part about it was I thought because the album was about love that it was gonna be him talking about being in love with a girl in all the songs and just the way that he was able to shape that album like that, that that is somebody that I can actually see being successful in your future. I, I the stuff that he did with uh, Anderson Pack as well. It's oh. just like to me that's you know, that's one of the songs of the year. Yeah, so. I I was arguing with, like with a lot of like uh, music or hip hop heads, quote unquote, uh, back home in Calgary. I was uh, this album for Mac Miller is probably I would have to put that up there with one of the best, if not the best, rap album of the year right now. My, in my humble opinion, that would have it has to be one of the best albums out right now. They can give me a list of five other rap albums that sound as good as Mac Miller's album, then I'll take that out <laughs> eat my words. But that's just me. Um, what are some things that you've seen in the music industries that have changed and stayed the same over the years? Um, the thing that's Stayed the uh, stayed the same yeah. over the the years. The thing that's stayed the same over the years is change. <laughs> it's all I've ever known in this business. Um, I was on a panel recently where somebody asked me if streaming mm. was a fad. I don't think so. I said it was. Really? Yeah. In the same way that cylinders, okay, seventy eights. 45s, LPs, and CDs, and downloads mm. were a fad. What's not a fad is people consuming music. Yeah. And in the end, we sometimes, you know, you go through these periods where, you know, I, I remember, you know, the industry moving away from LPs and trying to convince people CDs were the way to go. CDs were the ultimate listening experience until downloads came along. Um, I still like the CD. Yeah, I, I enjoy going to the. I, I love, you know, holding yes a record I or can, a CD. I can download the like the electric version, quote unquote, and have it on my computer. But I enjoy c- the collection, having looking at my desk and seeing the collection of CDs I'm with it. that I've acquired over time. And I believe HMV now, just because I've purchased so many albums, they just give the they will give me a specific discount on albums. Every oh, time is that I through their in. pure... Uh, yeah, just because yeah, yeah. I'm like such an avid believer in... And I think I'm one of the only people, or one of the very few people that believes in just... I want to have the hard copy of yep. it. Like, like, I can lose my computer tomorrow that has all my music, but then I'll have the hard copy that I can refer to. It feels the same way. Exactly. Right? But it's, you know, that, and that's the concept. We often forget that the, the value isn't in the carrier. It's not in the, the format. The, the, the real value, the real important is, is, is what's on those carriers. So whether it's streaming or it's, you know, and what the, you know, as far as real change, what I've seen is because of what happened in, um, because what happened in the 90s with, uh, with, file, uh, with file sharing and the, the world of Napster, etc. Um, you know, I saw people give up 
and I saw artists having to struggle in a way that they they hadn't had to in a long time. Um, you know, we saw we saw the focus go from recorded works to the live experience, and you know, everybody says now that well, where the artist is going to make real money is on the road tour and they're going to sell shirts and they're going to sell this and for a brief period I would say that that was a good bet but basic economics tells us you know it's the, the law of supply and demand when every single artist of every single level mm-hmm. is having to stay on the road to put food on the table it, it only makes sense that it's going to be a law of diminishing returns. They're going to get, they're going to get paid less. They're not going to get paid more. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe on the upper end, the, the the superstars. Yeah, maybe they're going to be able to get you know these crazy five hundred dollar ticket uh, prices. But it's the middle class. It's the guys who uh, a couple years ago may have been getting uh, a sixty dollar ticket, a fifty dollar ticket. That's being forced down, and then. You know the, the the real working class musician. Um, look, I'll give you you know I'll give you a hundred bucks and part of the door. You don't want it? Well, that guy does, so he gets to get. For when did you develop your love of music? Like fully develop the love of music that you and you knew that you wanted to pursue it as like a career. Um. To be honest, my love of music became, uh, was from a little kid. It was, I had my, uh, one of my dad's sisters who used to babysit me yeah. when I was really little. And she always brought her records with her. So this would have been, you know, uh, late 60s, mid 60s. So it was, you know, the Kinks, the Who, the, the, the Beatles. You know, my father had a big record collection, so that was always um, that was always there. Learn, thinking I want to make a career in this business, um, that was a slower evolution. I'd always at, at some point because I, I I don't play, nobody would ever want to hear me sing. Um, I hung around with a lot of musicians, I, a lot of friends were in bands, and I wanted to be involved. And I figured out well, I could be involved in other ways. Set up gigs. I could, you know, write the bio. I could do. You know, in in university, I worked at the college radio station. I published a fanzine. I helped book gigs. Post university, I was going to take some time off before I went to. My original plan was to go to law school. Started working in some record stores. Yeah. Started to meet people in the record business. I was like, oh, that looks like fun. I'll do that for a few years. I'll raise, you know, because I. Had to raise money to go to law school. Still waiting. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm almost 55. Maybe I can start law school when I'm, you know, 65. Music career picks you instead of the other way around. I yeah. suppose how I see it. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's there waiting for you if you, if you go after. You want to work for it. Uh, but I do my research and I see that you got that you are on the board of directors for Keras, which is uh, the Canadian Academy of Arts and Sciences, alongside yeah. Universal. Um, President uh, Steve Jeffrey, uh, Rap, Remedius, uh, Remedius yeah. um, Sony Music, uh, CEO, or CEO of uh, AOL Entertainment, Ed Marcon, and many more. 
what's the dynamic like between all of you, all of these power houses in one room together? The the great thing about a board like Karis um, is the people who sit around that boardroom table are there for the the total Canadian music ecosystem because that board is made up of people from record companies, agents, uh, promoters, uh, managers, and it exists to um, to elevate the presence and opportunities for Canadian music across the country and around the world. Um, so it's, it's a great place where people walk in the door and as much as we can leave our company or personal agendas at the door and like okay how do we raise more money for music counts mm -hmm. so that we can put more instruments in more kids hands yeah. how can we work to uh, make local community centers somewhere that kids can go to immerse themselves in music how do we build the Junos into a stronger and more recognizable brand yeah. that, uh, that when you win a Juno really means something for your career so the, the you know the power dynamic in that that room is really okay how do how do we actually put all of our day-to-day -day competition aside and work to the betterment of our industry as a whole because if the industry as a whole is healthy then all our little separate fiefdoms are healthy yeah you know it also helps you know canada is not a big country <laughs> it's not a big uh, well it is a big country but it's not a big uh, you know, it's not a big industry. So the president of Universal Music, Jeffrey Remedius. I've known Jeffrey since he was 18. Oh, wow. He, he was an intern at Virgin Records. Oh, Virgin so Records. he worked his way up to the top. Did he ever? He, <laughs> did he ever? Um, Shane Carter, uh, the president of Sony, he and I uh, worked together at Polygram. He was at Polygram Home Video wow. when I was at uh, A&M Records. Resident of Karis, Alan Reed. Yeah. He and I worked together at AM Records when he was head of AR, wow. where he signed Bass's Bass, Jan Arden, Ashley McIsaac. Um, you know, so we, we, worked, we worked together, and again, we worked together later at Polygram, so you know, we grew up in this business together. Uh, Randy Lennox, who's currently the uh, president of uh, Bell Media. Met Randy when he was head of sales at uh, at MCA Records. Mm -hmm. On my first day working for a label, Randy took me aside and said, "Remember, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And if you think you have one, ask me, because I probably <laughs> asked it to somebody already." You know, so that's the kind of community that you build. Um, so yeah, those 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 boards are it's an important part of it. Because we also try to foster a Canadian music community, apart from our, our individual business. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't know how big that how big of a deal it was till I actually got to Harris, just because I heard about Harris a couple of times, but you, they delve deeper into it, and yeah. it gives you a better understanding of how big of a role they play in the Canadian music industry as a whole. Um, what do you think about people saying that uh, record companies won't be needed because of the digital age? Like, what's your your opinion of the notion that digital age is replacing the need for record company? Um, record companies at their best 
what we do is build. There's a couple of things that we do really well. We curate. Yeah. We help the best of the best rise to the top. Yeah. Um, we have an infrastructure and um, a, a team globally that can shine a light on people. What we really do is, you know, if you think about it, we're amplifiers. Yeah. We're the ones who. You can put, you and I could record a song right now, go on, put it up on Spotify, put it up on uh, iTunes, put it up on on, on uh, SoundCloud, and there it will sit. <laughs> Unless by some miracle, you know, somebody comes along and starts to hype it. You can, look. There's exceptions to every rule, and there are people who've been able to do a fantastic job on their own to start building. But eventually, you got to build a team. Eventually, you need an infrastructure. Eventually, you need a financer. True. You need an investor. True. So, you know, why try and reinvent the wheel? We already exist. This is what we do, and our job is to curate to a point um, and get people to. You know, to, to give you an opportunity to connect with the music. Our job is to put opportunities in front of our artists and say, here's a way, again, here's a way to amplify what you're doing. So I don't think, I think record companies will evolve. I think we'll, we're always changing. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we provide services. It's no longer just, pre you know, access to a pressing plant and a bunch of trucks to take them to the store. We, we have to be able to understand how the algorithms for Spotify work. We have to understand how you build a, a compelling playlist. We have to be able to say, all right, right now it is going to cost you, you know, it's going to cost you $100 to go on this tour. Or sorry, you, sorry, no, I got that backwards. Like, you're going to go out on this tour and you're going to make $100. But to make that $100, you're yeah. going to have to spend... $300. You're losing money. So, part of what we do is we're able to finance those tours. We're able to give tour support yeah. and say, no, no, we get it. You're not going to break even on this tour. You're going to be sleeping on the floor. You're going to be sleeping in the van. You're going to be sleeping three to a room. But the point is, you can get out there. Get your face in your mouth. Yeah, it's, you know, record companies aren't going to go away. We're going to evolve. Because that's the machine that you need in order to take your career to the next level. That's always been my thing, anyway. Um, I, I was sitting in your guest lecture at Harris Institute a couple weeks ago, and you touched briefly on streaming services such as Spotify. What are your take on how popular so like these services have become? Kind of feels like they became popular overnight, type of thing. Um, yeah, it, it sometimes it does feel that way, but I think we felt the same way with downloads, yeah. where iTunes launches and you think, oh, this will be a nice little addition to what we do. You know, they quickly become our number one customer. And, you know, download starts to drive the culture. It starts to drive the way people listen to music. It starts to drive um, how we think about releasing a record. And I think we're seeing the same thing with, with um, streaming services and subscription services. Uh, we are seeing really rapid growth. 
streaming and the subscription service. And what that tells me is that people see a value in paying for this. Do they pay enough? Arguable. You know, that's always going to be a, be a debate. But the idea that we are shifting from a world that you and I just talked about how we both like to walk into a shop and yeah. walk out with that. You know, we're in a, a period of history where we're, we're moving from ownership to access. And I think if people are willing to pay for that access and that people can listen to music when, how, and where they want, the only barrier that I want to put in front of any of those experiences is that we get paid for it. Mm. We get paid for it, the artist gets paid for it, the songwriter gets paid for it. Like, that's the only barrier that should be there. Yeah. Somebody's got to pay for it. Yeah. There's no such thing as free music. That's true. I, I enjoy the streaming services as much as the next person. Only reason I ever, or only reason I actually signed up for Tidal is just because of the exclusives that they will release before anybody else gets mm. to hear it. Only reason I pay twenty dollars a month in order to be able to have that access, or if they do contests where you can win tickets or small things like that, that's the only reason that I signed up for Title. If not, then I would be like, there's no way I pay twenty dollars a month in order that to service, access yeah. music. Yeah. yeah, well, and the funny thing is, of course, is there's a raging debate on the idea of exclusives, mm -hmm. and are they custom? Are they fan friendly? And at what point do fans get to the breaking point of going, okay, so now I have to figure out, I've made the decision I'm going to go to streaming, but this one's only available on, uh, you know, Frank Ocean's only available on Apple, and this one's only available on Tidal, and this one's only available on uh, Google. It's, it's like, at some point, the fan, I think, sits back and says, you know, you guys are doing it to me again. You're putting these <laughs> barriers in front of yeah. me. And again, if I can figure out a workaround, I'm going to figure out a workaround. That's what people do. Yeah. Um, I think the, you know, when you think about Canada in particular, it's actually a great country for streaming. Mm. Because you think yeah. about the, our sheer geography, mm -hmm. and you think about the kid in Flin Flon who wants access like, you know, is, is, is there a kid in Flimflon who can't find the Anderson Pack record right now? Well, Probably, yeah. he can because it's on Tidal, Spotify, etc., etc. Yeah. So, you, you know, and you know, we've, got great, we've got great broadband uh, initiative, and, and Canadians are used to paying for a subscription. I mean, we had cable TV long before anybody else did. It's, like, it's a really good thing for, for, our, for this kind of country. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, it's the, uh, the very idea. And this goes back, you can tie this back to will record companies disappear? Because if every song is available on Tidal mm -hmm. or Google Play, how do you know which button to press? Like, you know, you still, our job as curators mm -hmm. is to say, you know, here's a bunch of buttons. If you push button A, you get a great song. If you push button C, you get an okay song. Yeah. Our job, get people to bust, push button A. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what was, one of the things that I wanted to ask is what uh, what was the experience like over at Island slash Def Jam Records? Because that's probably, that is for me one of the most iconic in terms of like hip hop culture and whatnot. Um, what were, like, what were some of the affluent artists that were over on that label that you got to witness kind of start their career and 
as I mentioned, that was sort of you know, uh, the um, like Hard Knock Life and uh, the first Jay Z record. Yes. Like this, it was seeing it was seeing things change. It was seeing you know, it moving to um, uh, a much much. Uh, much more accelerated creative process. It was when you think about those first three or four Jay Z records, Blueprints and Hard Knock. It's a, watching the jumps that those artists made uh, in what was really a brief period of time. You know, I look now and it's like these two and three year gaps between records. It seemed to me, you know, and again maybe it was just because I was in the middle of it when and watching these records roll out. It, it just seemed to be an accelerated pace. Um, and they were inventing the business as they went along. Um, you know, the, the hip hop game looks very different now than it, it did then. And, <laughs> yeah, it, and it was just, you know, it was just fantastic to watch that and to see, I remember we had a run of, you know, Jay-Z, DMX, um, uh, who else was there? Redman, Method Man. Great, just watching that, and you know the idea that each record was going to get progressively more interesting, that they were going to be finding new sources for, for you know what they were sampling, what they were creating, um, and to see, and, I, and again I credit Jay with this, and and maybe even before Jay, um, uh, LL Cool J, yeah. with yeah. the idea that presentation of the music and the presentation of the culture can step off of the small stage and just you know go into rock arena world and that was a really exciting period um, for those Def Jam acts and for, for watching what was going on with the culture then because it was you know this is no longer a niche category this is stop thinking about us as, as a niche, um, uh, you know, a, a niche genre. This is popular music writ large. This is as big as rock and roll. Yeah. This is as big as metal. Yeah. This is you know we we are here to command this stage. And you know I, the uh, again I always go back to the experience of going to the the Hard Knock Life uh, tour. It was absolutely incredible. First of all, to see a stadium filled like that. And the presentation went from, you know, just the MC prowling back and forth off the stage to pyro and explosions and people, you know, popping out of pods. And it just became like, yes, this is full entertainment value now. Um, and, just to, and to see it start to cross over, to see it cross into all areas of, of the country. Um, to me, one of the biggest things was the realization that you know, suburban kids in Edmonton and <laughs> you know, vagina, like, this doesn't have to, you know, th this is about teenage rebellion. This is about sticking the flag in the ground and music that your parents didn't understand. Mom always tell me, turn that, turn that, or devil's 
music that that's what she refers to rap as is devil's music or she'll be like turned out rubbish now just because of her accent from being from africa is the funniest thing ever <laughs> well i turn it up louder just to annoy her sometimes but don't you want to listen to somebody who can sing <laughs> I, this type of music that she puts on like ironically she actually started off listening to tupac because tupac uh, Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg yeah. being a really, really big influence in Nigeria, uh, in all places in Nigeria. People like Prince, Snoop Dogg, Tupac, even Exhibit. My mom knew who who these artists w- like were like years before I even got the opportunity to experience their music. Being, Snoop Dogg being a really, really heavy hitter in the like in Nigeria originally, where my parents came from, which is like kind of a shock to see yeah, how far yeah. it was able to stretch around the world in a short period of time uh, why it's great because you can also you, you can also go the other way and see how some of the great Afrofunk yeah. players influenced hip-hop and influenced um, uh, uh, you know, American R&B it's uh, no, I think that that period of I was I, I I I have the ability sometimes to freak out uh, you know cab drivers for instance because <laughs> I can get in and they'll be playing somebody and I'll say you know oh that's that's Tony Allen or that's you know, um, uh, you know I'll, I'll, I'll just be able to toss it an artist and go that's that or you know knowing the difference between high life and Afro funk they look at me and go, how, how do you know that <laughs> the best thing about being in music school yeah. is being able to call or even before getting to music school being able to call who's going to be bigger just because of I guess the different types of like entertainment industry folks that you watch like me I started watching Breakfast Club like years and years ago and both me and like Charlamagne there were like it was Iggy Azalea she came on I was, would first hear or just even to see her personality like yeah she's gonna be a star like yeah. she's she'll, she'll blow up within the next three four years and then even before people in Calgary knew who she was, I'd pull them like this, and she's gonna be a superstar. Three years later, everybody in Calgary knows who she is. They're spinning her music on radio constantly, and constantly being able to hear stuff like that, it always kind of amazes me earlier on. Uh, I, I was arguing, I was actually arguing with an artist in school about the importance of 360 deals and how they're both beneficial to both, to both sides or both parties, technically. Rather be signed to a record label and then both of us get something out of it, then yeah. rather than the record label invest all their money and then only me getting something out of it. It's kind of one of those double-edged swords. Yeah, I only see it as a it's, a it's fair, right? Somebody invests their money into you. I, I would assume that you that they would make something out of it or they get something out of it. What's your take on 360? I think 360s. There's you know. The overall concept in, in the time frame when they really started to become uh, the norm was that we could no longer continue to make the same level of investment in an artist's career if we were only recouping from recorded works. Because, you, again, if you think about what a record company does, as you said, we're an amplifier. Yeah. And what we're really amplifying is your brand. And if your brand includes touring and merchandise that are all driven from having a hit record, 
then why shouldn't we? Because I don't, I don't think I've ever had an artist who had a hit T-shirt that led to a, a huge tour or a hit T-shirt that led to a top 10 single. So, you know, it still all starts with, you know, it's got to be in the grooves. It's got to be in the song. And we've got to invest in that. Then you add earlier to what I was saying earlier about tour support. Yeah. So let me get this straight. I'll help you tour when you're touring at the deficit. And I can put that on your recoupable. But I have to recoup it off of album sales. Um, and once you start making money on the road, I don't share in that. Doesn't, seem, Doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's not logical. And to your point, you want your record label to be fully invested in you. Exactly. And if you're sitting there, and I've got two artists sitting at this table right now. One is willing to partner with me and uh, take my money to invest in the brand. And I've got the other artist who says, yeah, I want all the same weight and all the same tools and all the same infrastructure that you're going to give artist A, but I just want you to recoup that investment off of record sales. And now, and, and, and even worse, like now you're going to recoup it off of streaming. Which one am I going to go with? You know, and which one, even if I sign both of them, which one am I going to go? One where you, where, yeah, where am I going to put the weight? Yeah, the one where both of you guys are making money rather than the artist is like, I want all the money and you guys do all the hard lifting for me. And now all that said, Remy, the, the, the one thing that I would say that we can, you know, at, at Warner Music Canada definitely and Warner around the world is if you are going to ask to share in those revenue streams mm -hmm. and be part of that business, you have to be able to service those needs. You have to be able to contribute something. So that's what we attempt to do. It's why we have, uh, it's why we have a merch division. It's why we have uh, people who, who do ticket bundling. It's why you know, you've got to add on. It's why we have people who are very proficient at working with people like Spotify, and we have people who help um, you know, help do brand partnerships. So if I can take you know, our country singer Brett Kissel and pair him up and team him up with uh, Wiser's Rye in the country market, yeah. if I can help make that happen again, I should share in some of the results of that. So I think you know 360. And the other thing about 360 is. It's not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody walks in here and they already have, and it's happened in the past, where somebody walks in and they may have a, a parallel career, say in acting or modeling, yeah, and they're already making a good, you know, they're, they're making some coin off of doing that. Yeah. Well, that should be hands off for me. That's something they built. So, you know, if it's somebody fresh and new. And they get, you know, they may want to go into acting. If I can help facilitate that, then maybe I deserve to, to share that. Speaking of markets, what's your perspective on where different, where the different markets of genres like hip hop, rap, or rock and country? Where do you see them going in the next few years? Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I really don't have a, a specific answer to that. I, I, you know, I'm fascinated. And always happen uh, to see how genres evolve, mm -hmm. and see how um, 
listeners' tastes and fans' tastes start to point in the direction where something's going to go. Um, you know, the, the years of, of conscious hip-hop, um, you know, that was in a, a reaction to a, a period where a lot of hip-hop was very negative. Um, you know, and when, you know, when hip-hop became sort of a warmer sound, um, you know, people got tired of that you know, sort of harsh metallic yeah, yeah. beat that was going on. It's like, okay, let's bring natural instruments back into it. Let's bring, so I, you know, everything's sort of an action reaction. You know, in country right now, you go to Nashville and they talk about, and they have been for the last couple of years, uh, they talk about being at the uh, a fork in the road. So you've got the Florida Georgia lines and Luke Bryan's of the world, and you know, that sort of very you know, uh, sort of pop country mm-hmm. or rock country. Yeah. And then you've got another, another road where you've got people like Chris Stapleton, Casey Musgraves, that are taking it back to a very traditional country place. So in Nashville, they talk about being at this fork in the road. I don't know why they both can't coexist. I don't know why it has to be a fork. Exactly. It can be, you know, it can be two parallel lines. You know, rock. I've never been able to define what rock is. <laughs> it's just, it's so many different types, and you see it for a couple of years ago where you had people like Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy and that sort of emo. Best of the uh, best. Those were the best of the best yeah. to me. Like that emo vibe. And Panic at the Disco was just weird. It was weird, but in a good sense yeah. of weird. Like that, they came at a really interesting stage uh, in music time where that was that that type of like sound had hadn't been heard yet. And that's yeah. that's what caught or a lot or that's I think that's what caught my attention with it. Is just because it was like. A, these guys and just their image was the one thing that I could because I'm pretty sure that you know that we're a culture of like image like we, gra- we gravitate towards what we could see yeah. and to be able to see them dressed like that was like a whoa type of feeling to me yeah. at least yeah and at the same time you had you know uh, the, the other tributary with you know people like the black keys and the white yeah. stripes and the sheep dogs where it was very much you know very rootsy sound it was a throwback to classic rock so they all continue to evolve. And, you know, I, I wish I, I wish I did have you know exactly where those genres are going for because I could retire myself. One of my favorite facts, actually, about you that I've gone to learn while doing research on you was that you've collected over, or I believe, up to fifteen thousand uh, somewhere around uh, records over the years, and that you were actually also inducted I, what, into the music industry hall of fame. How long did it take you to play, or do you have any? Like specific favorites that you or favorite catalogs that you like to kind of go back to and listen to, and what was the feeling like being inducted into a Hall of Fame? Well, the I started I, I started buying records when I was twelve years old, uh, and I've never stopped. And that's you know, CDs, LPs, singles, um, and yeah, there's there's people that I go back constantly to, and that can be everybody from. Ramones just celebrate the, the 40th anniversary of their first album. That was a life-changing record for me. Um, but I can follow listening to the Ramones by throwing a Hank Williams record on and then follow a Hank Williams record with um, 
it's just, you know, I, but they're, yeah, they're catalogs that you go back to and they're, they're touchstones through your life. Um, you know, The Clash is another one. I, I, I think without The Clash's Sandinista record and some of the things that they did on it with uh, The Magnificent Seven, and I come, that, The Clash record actually led me to hip hop. Because they were so heavily influenced in, by the early days of hip hop. Yeah. So you, you know, from the Magnificent Seven, you take that and you go back to Grandmaster. You know, Grandmaster Flash. And it's and you know that's the great thing about collecting records and listening to a lot of music. Yeah. One person takes you to another. So if you listen to, um, you know, if you listen to Merle Haggard. Stone Cold Classic Country from California and you figure out well he's influenced by this guy named Lefty Frizzell and it takes you on a trip yeah um, so you know that's to me the joy of, of surrounding yourself by music you just you never know where where the next record's going to take you and um, you know and that was that was to me the the oddest thing about being you know honored with this you know, very nice very wonderful honor of being included in the Canadian Music Industry Hall of Fame. It's like, really, you're going to give me this wonderful honor for doing something I love, which is being surrounded by music, uh, aiding creative people, uh, helping to spread their music globally. I already get paid for it, so that's okay. Yeah. But now you're going to give me this very nice award that. That's, you know, that says that you think I'm good at it. That's really nice. And that was the overwhelming feeling of what, of it was, what, you've run out of people to put in here? Now you're getting to me? Um, but to be included in that, uh, in that same group of people as people like Bruce Allen, Dean Cameron, the longtime president of EMI Canada, um, you know, so many other people that I learned from that... Uh, yeah, it was it was a bit odd, but it was just, you know, I, as my wife said, um, you know, just take the nice thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, my very last question for you is um, actually my la- one of my last questions for you was I was lucky enough to be able to attend like the OMDC function that happened I believe it was last Friday, um, and I was able to like network with a whole bunch of different affluent people in the business. Um, what advice would you give to uh, not only myself but to other students that want to be able to get into like executive positions like uh, you have here in Warner Music and to have like a long career like you've had over the years what advice would you give to them um try to it's about finding the balance of listening and talking and being able to being able to really to be really open to receiving information and to know you know know what to pay attention to and if if you think something is if you think something's important chances are it it, it is and if you need to find out more about it don't be afraid to go and interact with that person um, know that throwing ideas out mm-hmm. is probably one of the most impressive things 
that'll get you noticed. It may be you throw 10 ideas out and seven of them just sort of get mixed, you know, get a shrug of the shoulders. But the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there is what, you know, is, is what gets people to notice you. Yeah. Um, and if there's an area that you're, you know, that you're confident in, that you really think you got a handle on, accentuate that. Um, and I, you know, just try and identify what it is because I meet so many people who just say, I want to be in the business. Yeah. Well, what in the business? Is it marketing? Is it promotion? Is it management? Like, if you can identify, that, that really gives you something to work towards. Um, and ask questions. Like, do what you're doing now. Yeah. Like, talk to people who already do it. And, you know, don't, don't be worried about saying, well, I don't know that. Can you, can you explain that to me? I told the story of you know the first thing Randy Lennox ever said to me. Yeah. Like, there's no stupid questions, or being able to articulate. When I first started in the business, I, it was I was hired because I knew where a specific group of people lived, mm -hmm. ate, worked, what music they were consuming, what magazines they were consuming. Um, so I could, you know, I was very confident in saying that. And then I could start to relay it to other uh, people. So, you know, being able to talk to a Dean Cameron back then about, well, you know, this is why, you know, this is why that record is selling in this particular market. You know, he could have said, you know, go sit over there. Or, <laughs> but you know, you, you find those people who are, who are willing to um, to share information. And then when you get on your way, when you start making some progress in the business. Remember what those people did for you, and that it's your obligation, yeah. your duty, to pass that on to the next, yeah. you know, to the next bunch of people. So, thank you. I think that hopefully answers. Yeah, no, definitely did. Thank yeah. you so very much for be or for allowing me to come down to Warner Music Canada because, of course, like you know, and a lot of people at my school know now at least that this is, this is like the company that I want to be able to be employed by some point in the future so i appreciate you being able to uh, sitting down with me and allowing me to ask you all these questions it's an absolute pleasure remy and uh you know, just keep working at this maybe we'll be looking at each other across from uh, across the desk and that was the interview with steve kane i hope you guys enjoyed it matter of fact drop one of the clues bombs for steve please So I want to give a quick shout out to my city, the city of Calgary. They host the biggest hip hop festival in the country called One Love every year. This year they had Big Sean, they had Janine Iko, Tyler the Creator, Logic, etc. Uh, I also want to give a big thank you to Round the Clock Records for giving me a new track to play for you guys, which will be played at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. Don't touch that dial at the end of this episode. Um, I also want to thank you guys, listeners, for tuning in to my podcast. Um, I will continue to release more of these episodes and try to get better as time goes on. But I'm going to leave you guys with this. What you think of yourself is much more important than what people think of you. Be humble in your confidence, yet courageous in your character. Peace and love.
cocaine baggy. I ain't look at how I had it. Nah. Now I hustle out of habit. habit. Keep it coming out of habit. Keep it coming automatic. Old oh, girl kind of baddish. She can get it automatic. automatic. Keep it coming automatic. Yeah. Top notch, call me Capital. Kevin. You can tell by how I spend the time. I ain't look at how I had it. Nah. Now I hustle out of habit. habit. Keep it coming out of habit. habit. Keep it coming automatic. automatic. I keep it coming, gotta have it. I keep it coming automatic. Yo, I was broke, I had to get it. Get Couple it. bad habits, don't regret it. Desperate time, desperate measures. Always put that business first before the pleasure. Uh, average nigga, nothing special. Had to learn to whip the work up with his passion. Started out as just a rapper. I'm at the street streets, turned me to a trapper. Yo, life's a button full of chapters. Watching for the fake niggas live in action. I've never really been a fan of math, but he snake niggas get subtracted. Uh, split that money like it's fractious. To all my niggas whipping ashes. To all my niggas living lavish. And I see my mama all up in the mansion. Uh, call my nigga Sean, tell him bring the bomb. Rolling up a pack of backwards. <laughs> Bitches never used to know my name, but now I hit the baddest bitch backwards. Yeah. Always got that gold purple on me. You would think I'm sponsored by the Raptors. Catch me chilling with a squad, blunts lifting off like we work for NASA. Yo, teacher said I want to be shit, but now I'm making more than her asses. Gave a nigga lots of time to write. Every day she kicked me out of classes. Uh, I just learned to take advantage. Now she hear my name, I know she getting anxious. Used to show me where the door's at, but now I show her ass with that bank. Fatty talk ain't baggy. I ain't look at how I had it. Now I hustle out of habit. Keep it coming out of habit. Keep it coming out of mad. Oh, girl, kind of baddie. She can get it automatic. Keep it coming out of mad. Top notch, call me Capitan. Tell by how I spend the time. I ain't look at how I had it. Now I hustle out of habit. Keep it coming out of habit. Keep it coming out of mad. I keep it coming, gotta have it. I keep it coming out of mad. I just sit and watch them niggas move. Brothers change up like a bitch's See you making that paper, turn them into haters, that's the shit that money do. Homies turning into strangers, I can see the changes by the face and actions too. Wishing they could come stick a nigga when they see me, then they start acting cool. Call the bluff, they start acting up, their eyes wide as fuck, they just stacking views. All these niggas see a dollar signs, but they don't see the time a nigga had to do. How much packs a nigga had to move, how much pigs a nigga had to lose. Just to make the drop, just to grab the loot, that's a sacrifice that I had to choose. Fans to feed, had to get that food, you ain't making money if you ain't making moves. Kiss my mama, then I pack the tools, this is North. These nigga check the news Trippin' then you better check your shoes Cause I smoke a nigga like some chicken soup Mama thought her boys getting grades I was getting paid, nigga skipping school Rags the riches, I'm the living proof We was broken bones, now we living smooth Mama split up in the living room My son made it big off his spitting tunes Felt the heat like some shit in June No more waking up like what we gon' do Some days I never had a clue Now I got to be my best coming soon Betty talk ain't baggy I ain't like it how I had it Now I hustle out of habit Keep it coming out of habit Keep it coming automatic oh girl kind of baddie she can get it automatic keep it coming automatic top notch call me capital you can tell by how i spend the time i ain't like it how i had it now i hustle out of habit keep it coming out of habit keep it coming automatic i keep it coming gotta have it i keep it coming automatic